shot that we got. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Picket Fence Podcast. My name is Derek Early. And I'm Cam Smith. We're the hosts of the brand new Picket Fence Podcast, a basketball podcast with an Indiana focus. Yeah, each week we're going to bring you guys some discussion topics on current affairs in the basketball world, both high school, college, NBA, and beyond. Also, each week we will discuss and break down a topic related to basketball in the state of Indiana or expand to another hoops-related discussion. And this week, we're going to be introducing a brand new format for the podcast where we're going to discuss the NBA playoffs, the NCAA transfer portal, new head coaches around the state of Indiana, and more. At the end of the show, in honor of the playoffs, we will be discussing our favorite playoff performances of all time. After the episode, check out our social media platforms and share some of your favorite playoff moments. Check us out at PicketFence underscore pod on Twitter and the PicketFence podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And when we come back, we're going to get warmed up with our pregame shoot-around topics. Welcome back to the Picket Fence Podcast. And before we get uh, kind of back to our topics, I wanted us to explain kind of our new format here. So uh, we're kind of taking a, a new look at some of the ways we're discussing our topics. And we're actually going to kind of format it, um, and it's going to look similar to a basketball game here. So uh, our discussion that we're about to have here and then briefly discuss a couple of current event topics is going to be called our pregame shoot-around. We're going to have some discussions on current events, kind of go back and forth, uh, and just just have a quick conversation before we get into our big topics. After that, we're going to play four quarters of basketball. And how that's going to work is we have eight-minute quarters, just like the Indiana high school game now, eight-minute quarters to discuss four big topics in the basketball world today. We'll have eight minutes, our buzzer's going to go off, and then we're going to go to our next Topic. So we're going to play four quarters here in a little bit. And then to end, we're going to have our big discussion. And today, I'm really excited to discuss uh, our favorite playoff performances or, you know, slash playoff runs of all time, kind of in order of the playoffs. I think that'll be really fun. So to, to get started, we're going to warm up and have, uh, you know, kind of a pregame shoot around here before we get warmed up into our into our heated discussion. So uh, to shoot around today, the first, the first um, topic I want to shoot around with you, uh, with Derek, is some of the new coaching names that we're seeing in Indiana. We had an episode a couple weeks back discussing the big-name jobs that were open around the state, and there are still some pretty big names going around. But um, I kind of wanted to see your thoughts. I wanted to share my thoughts on some of the the names being thrown around and the new hires uh, in the state. Yeah, so we did talk about that a couple of weeks ago, Cam. And looking here, just going off of our area, uh, there are some jobs that have been filled. Uh, Lanesville found themselves a head coach. New Albany, I think, was the job that you and I probably spent the most time talking about um, and kind of the, the biggest job south of Indianapolis that was open. Um, they found themselves a head coach in Craig Teagle, who comes to them from Huntington North. Uh, he's had some success at other places as well. Jay County took them to a state championship game in 2006 and then has had a pretty good run at Huntington North, and he inherits a New Albany job that should come with at least the expectation of success and a roster that obviously you can you can work with. Um, tough conference to walk into, tough sectional to walk into, um, but certainly that job and that school, um, as we've seen the last several years, produces talent and certainly will put himself in a position to be successful um, down the line here. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Craig Teagle getting the Duolmany job and uh, replacing Jim Shannon is, I think, the biggest. Well, there's a bigger name that I want to discuss here in a little bit that's been thrown around a little bit up north. But um, Craig Teagle getting that job is definitely, I think, the biggest hire we've seen so far in terms of the, na- the name of the school. Uh, filling, you know, filling Jim Shannon's shoes is going to be a big, big task. And he's like, we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, the gold standard in terms of a program and a coach. Um, but it's definitely, uh, I I could, I, I can't imagine anybody, any coach around the state wouldn't be excited about having this job. And I'm sure coach Teagle will be as well. Uh, One of the things I found interesting is he definitely has a lot of confidence coming in. I read in the paper, um, where he had a very stoic look about him when, when he got the job and the pictures they posted about him and, and he said that he's not smiling until he went to state championship. And I like that confidence, but I got to be honest, Hoosier Hills is a tough, tough conference. I mean, you're going to be facing all the Hoosier Hills teams, and you know all those guys are in your sectional. You're facing some of the best teams in the Mid Southern Conference. You're facing some teams from up north that are pretty tough, and occasionally, you know, they'll they'll play a team from Louisville. That's a tough schedule and a tough four-way schedule. Um. I was kind of looking in the teams that have won the past several 4A state titles. Um, and if you have less than, I think it's 10,000, I think was the number in terms of students, there are not many of the smaller 4A teams that win the 4A state basketball title. You are the top the top tier in terms of the, the size of your school winning it. And New Albany is not as big as some of those. I know they won a state title a few years ago when they had Langford. Um, which was a fun run, but um, when we're looking at this, I found that to be an interesting comment just because um, it's definitely going to be a big task to win a four-year state title, but, you know, I wish them the best of luck. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I know they've got some talent coming up. They've got some pieces to work with, and like you said, it, their, their conference is a bear, uh, but their schedule, as far as strength of schedule and the, the competition they play, ranks up there as high as anybody in the state. Um, especially teams south of Indianapolis where you're not playing in the MIC every night. Uh, as far as their schedule, you're talking about playing 22 games, you know, and you don't have a night off with their schedule at all either. So uh, he's certainly going to be going to be, you know, jump head first into it. And we'll see how they do their first year. But uh, thought it was interesting. You know, New Albany definitely didn't go with a young guy, which I, I think you and I talked about a little bit, not expecting them to go. Uh, complete fresh start, getting somebody in there that has some experience and some pedigree to him in this, and, and Coach Teagle obviously does. Uh, so I don't know that New Albany will necessarily miss a beat in this instance. I think it'll certainly be it'll look different without Coach Shane in there. Uh, but having somebody that has been to a state championship game that, that's won sectionals, that's won regionals, uh, and has been you know coaching since the early 90s, uh, you know, they've got a guy that I think can probably come in and take the reins and and make it his own, but also carry the New Albany tradition along the way it needs to be carried along. For sure. Um, some of the other interesting names. So we have kind of a local name that's relocated, and then also a pretty big uh, name that has been kind of thrown in the rumor mill, and, I, and it appears that it, it's going to happen. And I kind of want to bring that one up just because I think it's exciting. Uh, Pike has thrown the name out um, in the recent days and weeks. Uh, it apparently looks like they're going to hire Jeff Teague. Have you heard that as well? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I saw I, that the other day. I think that is probably – I think that's the coolest hire I've heard in, in, a, in a long time. Um, I know there are some teams around the state that have been hiring some former college players. Uh, Matt Roth recently um, at Fort Wayne Blackhawk. 
and uh, was a former IU player. Yeah. And there's some um, some names around the state of former college players. But uh, to have Jeff Teague coaching Indiana high school basketball, um, obviously having graduated from Pike, I think that's just going to be something that's exciting. I think it's going to be one of the best stories in the state. And schools have started to go to that because, I mean, you think about the Indianapolis schools and the Indy, Indy metro area, <clears throat> you can watch the NBA playoffs, and I think half the series have a guy from Indiana on yeah. a roster right now. Uh, and you're seeing a trend go back to those high schools with those guys wanting to come back home. And I think that's, that's pretty cool in that sense. And I think uh, Pike being able to – hire a guy with the reputation, the, the NBA pedigree of somebody like Jeff Teague. I think that's awesome. Um, it certainly benefits the kids, and I think it generates a ton of interest within that program. And with the way the state works right now, as far as being able to transfer places, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to whatever high school is closest to you, and the whole school choice thing, uh, that may shift some of the power dynamics in central Indiana and across the 4A landscape with a guy like that as as your head coach. I completely agree, and I definitely see why that's the appeal for a lot of these schools. Um, I'm actually pretty interested to see uh, if that's a trend that's going to take off. Uh, I'm curious to see if they're going to be more bigger-name guys who used to be in Indiana come back and, and, and coach. Um, it, would, it would be something that I think would be pretty exciting to see if you know, some former guys. And those names have kind of been thrown around as people who have been interested. I don't want to tell tales out of school, but there's been other names that have been tossed around the state in yeah. terms of different, different schools. And we'll see if those come true. We'll discuss those, you know, if, if they come to fruition. But, yeah, uh, yeah to see uh, Jeff Teague's name out there, I, I'm excited for it. And I can't, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I think it's um, going to be really cool. Definitely is. Uh, one more name I kind of want to discuss in terms of bigger names. And then um, we can jump topics here. But... Uh, the other name is kind of a, a local name that we've had for, for several years, and that is Lou Lefebvre um, taking the job up at Wawasee and going to the top of the state and leaving um, southern Indiana here. Uh, Lefebvre's a guy that um, you know the, the staffs I've been on and, and you as well, we've, we've had our teams compete against him um, this year as of recently. Um, you know, being at Corden Central, he was at North Harrison. We played them in the regular season and you know, in the sectional. Um, and having seen him in the past several years. And then when I was in high school playing, um, he was at Providence. I'm just a guy that has a tremendous record. Uh, this year at North Harrison was kind of a down year for him. I think they went 9-11 or 9-12. Yeah. Um, that is the only losing season that he has had since he has come to Indiana um, in the mid-2000s. Um, he has, up until this year, winning 17 games has been like his – calling card like it is 17 games by clockwork for him um he is from connecticut originally won multiple state titles there had success coaching in georgia and then moved to indiana if you read i read an article kind of and he was just discussing his career and he wanted to come to indiana because he wanted to go somewhere where people really cared about basketball which i thought that was my favorite quote from that article about him was he wanted to come where people care most about it and that's why he came to indiana uh, and he has had nothing but success he's won a sectional everywhere he's been um, he won North Harrison's first sectional in 26 years. Uh, I think that's what it was. Um, and so he moves up to Wawasee, um, a school that's been, you know, a, a pretty good record, pretty good school um, um, in terms of their basketball program. And I, I'm very curious to see, and I expect great things um, from him up there. And I, I just, it's a, it's a pretty big name, pretty successful name that, you know, made a big jump. 
Yeah, I think around the state that his name certainly was one being thrown around as far as where was he going to end up and what school was going to be able to get him. And like you mentioned his record, they were 9-12 and this year, his only losing season, and it's only the second time he's ever won less than 13 games. Yeah. Uh, so Wawasee is certainly getting a guy that, that has a system uh, that is structured, organized, can coach basketball, knows what he's doing. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time. Like you said, Wallace, he's been fairly competitive the last couple of years. Uh, and I think it's it's just a matter of time before you see their success and their name up there where they're contending for sectional titles on a consistent basis. It's just kind of what he does. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he does. it doesn't take much time for him to turn program into something that's that's competitive. Um, to jump though, uh, to jump to, a, a, I guess, a new subject here in our shoot-around while we're still warming up, uh, I kind of want to uh, discuss um, a different kind of a, a, a job change here in the, in the transfer portal. So we kind of <laughs> talked about our coaches, coaches jumping around here, and I think maybe we could discuss the transfer portal. I know you have some thoughts on that. I have a few as well. Um, so I guess just to start here, what are your thoughts on the, the transfer portal so far in NCAA men's college basketball, and are there any big names that have jumped out for you or um, you know, anything that you just find to be a really big shakeup in college basketball right now? Well, and looking at the, the numbers here, Cam, the transfer portal is something that I've got mixed emotions on just kind of in general, uh, but there have been 1,009 NCAA Division I men's players enter the transfer portal this offseason. Uh, wow. 259 have found a, a new home. They've all committed, and then only seven have withdrawn their name from the portal, which I think that that's interesting. And to me, it's kind of changed the landscape of college basketball in the sense that as a head coach, I think it makes the job more difficult Sure. because now not only am I responsible for recruiting high school players to come in as freshmen, right? So I'm spending the April recruiting session. I'm spending all of July recruiting. You're doing all of the stuff on campus, home visits, bringing kids in. And now you have to work on, not only recruiting high school kids that are going to play for you down the road, but now you're spending your time recruiting your own team. And you're competing against other universities. You're competing against major donors. You're competing against NIL. Uh, So the transfer portal becomes something that's really, really interesting to me. Uh, And Deion Sanders made a really cool point uh, interesting, I guess, as much as it was anything when he was talking about the, the, football transfer portal, but it applies to basketball all in the same sense. And he's saying that now with NIL and with the transfer portal and the ability to move each year, right? So if a kid wants now, they can play for four schools in four years. Um, And it's essentially NBA free agency, but there's no contracts involved. And like he's saying with the transfer portal, Now there's such an emphasis on the kids who are leaving their current university to recruit those kids because they've been there, done that. They've played at the Division I level. They have the experience. So now there's a greater emphasis on recruiting. It used to be just grad students um, who were wanting to get a fifth year, but now it's the sophomore, it's the junior that just simply wants a new location. Uh, He said the way that it works now with the new emphasis on the transfer portal that it's going to really hinder 
the high school recruiting. Now, I know that that speaks to football a whole lot more because you're the the ability to go pro from college basketball to the NBA is different than going pro from college football into the NFL. Yeah. And so the emphasis – he was speaking on it from the standpoint of college football coaches wanting to have juniors and seniors and grad transfers because they're grown men on their roster compared to loading up on freshmen. And so he's saying the scholarship numbers for your high school recruits now are going to diminish because you're going to fill your your scholarships with transfer guys as opposed to filling them with, uh, you know, incoming freshmen and high school seniors. I don't know that that necessarily becomes the dominant conversation in high school or in college basketball because I think there's such a following with high school basketball and a lot of your top upper echelon players in college do go pro. So there's a little bit of a higher turnover rate, I think, in that regard. Uh, But I do think that that's something in the next two, three, four years to really look at and see where those scholarships are being handed out to. Yeah, I I would agree with that um, in terms of the the difference between the football and and basketball. The football one, I can definitely see where that could be a big issue in terms of hurting the high school recruiting. A lot of college basketball, the guys that are going pro – typically are guys that are immediate pros um, in terms of their their reputation whenever they come to college. I don't think it will hurt it because I think there's big enough name guys that come in immediately and they're those one-and-done type players. Right. Um, the, the, guy, the thing that's interesting to me is the guys that are going to stay four years and or, you know, more than more than one year really if they're playing two three four years them moving around and like we saw in the NCAA tournament this year the way that it shifted the what we would think would be the power you know power teams in those top conferences um now you know it's not as much uh it's a little more balanced now that we've got these guys that are staying for several years transferring to these different schools yeah the thing the thing that i thought about and i thought it would be interesting and you compare it to NBA free agency, or you know, you talked about Dion comparing it to, to NBA free agency. My thought is, how long is it until we see a college basketball team pull the Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, Miami Heat deal, where we've got a couple top guys who decide, hey, we're all going to transfer to this school and see if we can go win an NCAA turn, you know, win an NCAA title. I'm curious if we have a couple of top players who all transfer and go somewhere. Uh, we saw a little bit of that with that Zion Duke team where all the guys all went to Duke. Um, I would I'd be interested to see if that ever happens where a handful of guys just say, hey, we're all going to jump on this team here. We like this coach or we all think that you know we could go here and win an NCAA championship. I'm curious to see if that will ever happen um, because there was that trend of getting a big three in the NBA for about a decade. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to see if we'll ever have anything like that. Um, that's that's kind of something I'd be excited to see if, if a players will you know take advantage of it that way. Yeah. But it's definitely something to seeing, you know, to see over a thousand kids transferring. I mean, this thing's a big deal. Yeah, and it, I don't know if you if you chalk it up as just simply the time we're living in, and is this a phase? Is this something that kind of you know goes away at some point, or is this the new normal? And with the adoption of NIL and the ability of kids to go out and make their own money, you know, are we looking at a, a situation where it's just a matter of where can I go to make the most? And is, it, is college basketball going to be one big revolving door? Uh, I, I, I kind of see it as, you know, everyone was really afraid of the one-and-done thing. 
um, a couple years ago, and they thought it would ruin college basketball, and it definitely hurt the perception of college basketball um, with the one-and-done rule. Uh, and then everyone just kind of got used to it, and then it became not such a big deal. We still had guys who were going one-and-done. It didn't quite, um, you know, it didn't kill college basketball, and it kind of fizzled out when kids stopped doing it as much and they realized that not everybody can just make the jump. Uh, I think there will be a few years of a big time exodus, all these programs. Uh, but I think, I think it will, I don't know if it will fizzle out cause I think we'll always have transfers if they have the ability to, but I don't think it will be once we all get the hang of it as fans. And then once coaches get an understanding of it, I think we will definitely see, um, definitely see it become a little more understood and a little more you know, comfortable for all of us. I think it's like anything. I think rule changes are going to be scary. I mean, you know, uh, people didn't like the three-point line for a long time when it came into college basketball. It was kind of seen, you know, it seemed like a novelty and a joke, and now it's something that we, you know, we talk about, you know, as you know, a part of the game like anything else. Um, I think this is something that for a couple of years is going to be uncomfortable. I think it's just going to look weird. Um, but I think it will be something we get used to, even if it doesn't feel right right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a kind of uncharted territory. And I think until coaches get caught up to it, universities get caught up to it, um, and to a certain degree, fans and players even, I think, getting caught up to it because it's all so new. Uh, once there's some parameters and I think people kind of get, you know, more than their feet wet and get acclimated to it, I think maybe then you'll kind of see things – go back at least a little bit to normal. Water will find its level maybe. Uh, yeah. But as far as looking at the transfer portal, you know, we're from Indiana. So, you know, looking at the Hoosiers, they got the Khalil Ware. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you from, what you thought was From Oregon, uh, arguably one of the top four or five players that put himself in the transfer portal comes to Indiana. Uh, and certainly is something to get Hoosier fans excited, something to look forward to. Um, having a seven-footer that can – be put in pick-and-roll situations that can be used to stretch the floor, um, I think will certainly make their offense look a little bit different because last year they spent, you know, 90% of the game playing with two bigs on each block and didn't necessarily give the guards a whole lot of room to work or the bigs themselves, you know, creating space for them to have room to work on the block and in the post. There was just wasn't a whole lot of it. So uh, they talk like they can play uh, Ware and Malik Renew at the same time and use where to kind of space the floor because he has some range out to the three-point line. So it'll be interesting to see how they use him and what uh, Coach Woodson does offensively that's going to look different than what we've seen the last two years. Uh, you know, does it get more – with him being an NBA coach, does the offense now get to look a little bit more NBA-esque as far as player movement, spacing, the type of sets that they're going to be able to use? Um, is it going to look more – more traditional in that sense as far as what we're used to seeing across not just the NBA but across most of college basketball. Uh, so certainly something worth getting excited for. But like I tell everybody that I, I talk to, uh, I'm not going to get overly hyped about my team until October, November rolls around and we start playing games sure. uh, and actually get a chance to evaluate, to evaluate the roster and kind of see what things are going to look like. But there is reason to, for some excitement in Bloomington, no doubt. Yeah, I think that I, I think it was really exciting news. I think people in Indiana just to see that there was a transfer that, um, you know, ended up at IU and to be the second-ranked guy right now that was in right. the portal. I think the interesting thing now is we're actually seeing some big-name guys transfer to big-name schools. Last year, I don't feel like I really heard that as much. 
And I think we were just kind of getting used to it, so we didn't quite know what to expect. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing some big names. I mean, the Hunter Dickinson kid from Michigan um, visiting and talking with Kentucky. To have a kid from the Big Ten transfer to the SEC, like two big basketball schools. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it sounds like a guy who's, you know, a free agent to left the Knicks and goes to the Lakers. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Like, oh, you know, somebody that's a big name going out somewhere to another big market. Right. Um, it, it's it's exciting. I'm curious to see where, where Dickinson goes. Um, the name that I really liked and I thought it was interesting is um, to have kind of a who's your connection here. His brother plays for the Pacers. Ryan Nimhard going from Creighton to Gonzaga. Um, you know, Creighton was oh, phenomenal. one of the best. Yeah, one of the best teams in, in the country and, and made an NCAA tournament run and uh, was a very weird in-of-game situation. They, are, uh, they were very close to, to making it even farther in the tournament. Uh, I know they kind of had that weird situation there to end. But for him to leave Creighton, who was a top team, and to go to Gonzaga, who is every year talked about as one of the teams that could win the championship, right. um, that's a big move for Gonzaga. And I think this is the most exciting thing that's come out of the transfer portal is we're seeing – Big name players on big name teams transferring to other big name teams, um, and I, I think this this changes the dynamic of college basketball every single year. Um, I think maybe it has the ability to make it more exciting in, in the you know from the aspect uh, or the standpoint rather of you know you you can't you can't get comfortable with. Um, certain teams, or you can't get comfortable being one of these top teams and, and think, well, well, we'll be in the Sweet 16 or lead it every year. Because right. now you've got more schools like Florida Atlantic who come out of nowhere because guys want to transfer. Yep. Or you can get a couple top players, go transfer to another top team, and they become a powerhouse. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's pretty exciting, and I think it's something that's um, it's something to look forward to next season. Yeah, and you mentioned Kentucky and the potential of getting Hunter Dickinson and – they're loaded coming back next year anyway uh, with their freshman class. Now you've got to wonder how does that translate, you know, because we've went through we, – <laughs> speaking of Indiana players in the playoffs, you, can, you can't throw a rock and miss a Kentucky player at this point. Uh, yeah. Every, yeah. Everybody's got a kid from Kentucky on their team, and it seems like every one of those players is arguably the best player on their team. I know. They're uh, all different makers. I think, I, think I think there's one from – We'll look at a break here, but I think there's one on every team in the playoffs. I'm pretty sure. And, you know, with their freshman class coming in, they're going to be a top five team most likely, I would think, preseason coming in. But you look at them and you think, what do they get in the transfer portal? Are they is, – is Kentucky someone that's going to be aggressive in trying to get kids, or are they content with what they're bringing back and what they're bringing in? Uh, right. And then my other team that I, I want to talk about real quick is St. John's. You know, what is Rick Pitino able to go out – and get in the transfer portal because he's he kind of walked in and pulled the Deion Sanders like, hey, if you're here right now, you're probably not here in November. Uh, yeah. Did not sound like he was necessarily overeager to hold on to the roster and sounds like he wants to go out and attack the transfer portal and bring in his own guys. So I'm excited to see the guys that show up in Queens next year on that campus and what their team looks like. Yeah, they've, they've got um... – They've had a transfer. Well, one of his guys from Iona, uh, did, uh, I don't know how to say his first name, Jenkins, and it's Jenkins. He transferred from Iona and came there. So he's already brought one of his guys. Um, and I know that a few of his guys have transferred out. A few St. John's guys transferred out, like you mentioned. But, you know, it, it is exciting because I think one of the things that is 
is appealing in the transfer portal is can you help me get to the NBA? You know, one of the reasons Cal was bringing in guys in Kentucky was he had the connection. I can get you one year and you're in the NBA. Yeah. Um, and I think someone like, you know, Coach Woodson, who's got the NBA connection, he's going to have the ability to, to, to make that appealing for kids. Patino is definitely going to have that. Um, and so I'm excited to see what he brings in, to see that one of his guys already came there with him, um, to see that he's had three guys that have already transferred out. Um, it's pretty exciting because you know he's going to bring in guys. He's going to, you know, you know what his teams are going to look like. Yeah, you know they're going to be successful. And I'm curious to see if there's any big name that that makes a jump to St. John's. And I'm excited to see that, you know, St. John's is I, I believe going to be a top team uh, in college basketball again. Yeah, I would give that. And you and I have talked a few times off air just amongst ourselves, and I think it's a two or three year window. You know, yep. before as long as he's willing to stay there and see. A couple of years through, it's a two or three year window, I think, before St. John's wins the Big East. And it simply, to me, a thousand percent is accredited to his name, his recognition, his reputation for what he can do with players, the type of system that he wants to play, the the style that he plays. I think it's attractive. Uh, so I don't think it's it's any any matter of time before. And shoot, it may be this year. Depending on what I they mean, get, he won, um, he won his conference with Iona in his first year. Yeah, and it, it very well maybe this year, especially with guys like Nimhard leaving Creighton, and you know making the the Big East maybe a little bit easier to get through. You know, Xavier they lost a couple of their main guys this year. They they lost some of those guys to graduation, um, and then UConn has lost some guys not only to graduation but also to the NBA. So. Yeah. Is, is the Big East wide open next year, and is he able to come in and get the right guys and hit the ground running? And it, that very well may be the case. And if not, I think by year two or year three, they're winning the conference. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, when we come back, we are going to uh, play four quarters and uh, see if we can uh, kind of get used to our new format here. All right, and welcome back um, to the Picket Fence podcast. So we're going to introduce again our, our new format. So we just kind of had our shoot-around. Derek and I are warmed up now, uh, took, our, took our shots, and now we're going to play four quarters. And how it's going to work is we're going to play uh, four eight-minute quarters of basketball here where we're going to discuss four hot topics in the basketball world right now, uh, have a discussion, ask some questions, break down, uh, and, and share our thoughts on the hottest topics in basketball right now. Um, so, Derek, if you're ready to play, we're going to tip off here. I'm going to start our clock in just a minute. But I want our first discussion, uh, quarter one here, we're going to discuss uh, the big topic in the NBA playoffs right now, and that is um, the idea of these plays in the NBA involving Draymond Green, Joel Embiid, Dylan Brooks, James Harden being dirty or competitive. So I'm going to start the clock. We're going to tip it off here. What are your thoughts on – the the flagrant and and uh, you know quote unquote dirty plays we're seeing in the NBA. I want to start with with the question of who is sort of to blame for some of the stuff that we're seeing right now in the playoffs, and it's not just in the playoffs, Cam. It, it's carried out. You know, it plays out during the regular season. It plays out the last probably two or three seasons, and for me, it's a conversation of. Who's kind of at fault? Is this a player issue? Is this a referee issue? Is this an NBA issue? 
And I think it's probably some combination of all of them. But I look at, at, at what the officials and the NBA are allowing to go on that have kind of predicated some of, the, some of these things um, or led to some of these things that we're seeing in the games with these guys, especially the last couple of weeks. Uh, because the first, this first round of playoffs has been very chippy. Uh, and I think it's a matter of what has been led to slide because we look at these instances and it's probably fair to say that officials are probably hyper-focused on Draymond Green for example, just with track record and, you know, past behaviors and issues that he's had in the league uh, with different guys and in different times. But then you look at, you know, the Joel Embiid situation. You look at at James Harden and, um, shoot, the the one we've had with with Dylan Brooks and LeBron James in the last couple of games with Memphis and L.A. Uh, I think it's a byproduct of what – the officials have allowed to slide. And to me, you know, if it's no different than you and I coaching a high school game, you know, depending on what the officials call tight in the first quarter dictates how the rest of the game is going to go. And I think in some cases the NBA has let some things slide because in, in a lot of these cases we're looking at superstars that are involved. So is there hesitancy to not only eject but to suspend uh, you know, certain guys are getting a little bit longer leash than others. Uh, I don't know that I could look at these all and say they're dirty plays, uh, but it's certainly just it's it's not a good look for the NBA at all. But I I think it's a, a result of what the league and what the officials have allowed to go on for too long with some of these guys. Um, so I have to agree with you here, and I think it has to do a lot with officiating. Now, to go to some specific instances, um, the Joel Embiid, James Harden, Nick Claxton, that, that's more of a scuffle. Uh, James kind of took a swing below the belt. Uh, that's pretty rough. I can see where that causes an issue. Um, the issue between Claxton and Embiid kind of just seemed like frustration. It didn't seem to be malicious. Um, Draymond's Look, there's been a lot of defense with him on television and on you know sports radio and everything like that. Um, I'm not in his corner in this. Not that my you know <laughs> opinion, you know, not that I'm sure that my opinion on Draymond I'm sure doesn't hold water with him. But I'm not really in his corner. Um, we watched before this season a video of him knocking one of his teammates out cold in a practice. Yeah, um, he is out of control at times. Um, I'm sure Steven Adams has some things he would um, like to talk about in terms of Draymond's plays being dirty. Uh, He's had some experience with that. Um, He has a reputation. uh, And so I think that preceded him. I think that was his issue. Should he have been suspended? I don't know. Um, That's above my pay grade um, in terms of decision-making in the NBA. But I don't know if he should have been suspended. I can see an ejection. I thought that that there was no reason he should have stepped on Demonis Sabonis. I thought that that was... I mean, grab your leg, not grab your leg. If he kind of kicks him off, that's one thing. But he stomped on him pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, that seemed malicious there. Um, but I, I think the, the real issue, and I think it's why I love the NBA playoffs, is that the NBA playoffs is way, way different than the NBA regular season. We're seeing a much more physical game being played. Yeah. You know, people were talking about, you know, the Sacramento Kings and can just playing that kind of offense win games 
in the playoffs. Well, they're not just playing offense. They're playing physical with the Golden State Warriors. You know, you've got teams that are being physical that are, you know, double and triple teaming Joel Embiid, trying to knock him on the ground every once in a while. You know, you've got some superstars that are kind of getting hurt because we're playing a physical game. I think that some of the superstars are getting kind of chippy because, and this will come up later in our later in our game here, we've got superstars that are playing a softer type of game in terms of the less games being played. They are getting a lot more foul calls in the regular season. Um, we're seeing a lot if these superstars get to the free throw line quite a bit. Um, and these defenses are designed to win a series, and they're going to be physical. And they know by game four, a superstar that's been beat up for three or four games is, is not going to be as effective. So I think it's, it's the officiating, but I think it's also because it's, it's a different game being played. And when it's being played physically like this, um, it's taking some players off guard. Yeah, and I, I think the officiating certainly may. It's a, it's a good point there to talk about the officiating side of things. And I think you're right in how much differently the game is called once the playoffs start to convert compared to the regular season, because you, you look at guys like Embiid, James Harden, um, those two jump to my mind specifically because they make a killing at the free throw line during the regular season, and they've been officiated one way for 82 games, and come the playoffs, there's an elevated level of physicality that's allowed to go on as far as what you're allowed to do defensively, and it creates issues. And we also, unfortunately, live in a time where we have the most entitled society that we've ever seen. And we're talking about grown men who are at the highest level of the sport, who are uber competitive. And now we're at a time where the 12th guy on the bench has a social media profile and a social media following and feels like he's above reproach. So you know how the starters feel, and I think that's a little bit where some of this comes in. It just there's so much tension between these guys. It's like you can't talk to me, you can't touch me, get off me, and they have that mentality. And it's for me, it becomes hard to watch at some point, uh, especially when I look at like Draymond and Dylan Brooks. And for me, I want to just go play the game. Right. Like I want to, I want to see the best players in the world go play the game without a bunch of theatrics, without a bunch of drawing the attention and look at me. And to me, it it, it goes a little bit. It goes beyond the game. Right. And I think for these guys, I wish they would just let the game, let their game speak for itself. Sure. Um. I don't know. I've I've played enough basketball in my life that I've had enough people fall underneath me. I've never used their chest as a launching pad. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm with you in that regard. I, I can't necessarily get behind Draymond and be like, oh, well, he, it was uncalled for or he shouldn't have been suspended because I think the suspension, might, you know, you could argue it's warranted, certainly an ejection. Uh, but it would be nice to see him kind of clean some of this stuff up. Right, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. Um, and for those of you who could hear, uh, our buzzer went off there. Um, that's the end of our first quarter to kind of wrap up that uh, dirty or competitive discussion. I have to agree with you, though, um, kind of in between quarters here. Um, yeah, let the game speak for yourself. 
and, and don't and don't um, allow too much of the too much of the theatrics that go right. on. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a different. It's a different game in the playoffs for sure. hundred percent. So, to, to kind of piggyback on that and head to the second quarter here, um, one of the other big storylines here in the playoffs is the injuries to some of the the main superstars in the league right now. Um, we're not seeing injuries to some role players. We're seeing the top players on these teams be uh, injured. And so uh, as I as I kind of start the clock here for our second quarter, um, what are your thoughts on this and how is it going to affect the playoffs when we're talking about some of these big names that have been, that have been out? Well, I'm going to throw a question back at you, and you okay. can tell me what you think. Uh, do you feel like load management throughout the course of a regular season has impacted some of this at all? Sure. So, um, you know, that's a, a topic we're going to talk about here in a minute too. But I, I agree. I agree with that. I, I'm not sure how it affects the injuries. There's a lot of talk about how it can, how it can keep guys from being injured come playoff time because they're rested. But then, by the same token, I can also see where it's. You know, it, it can hurt them because they, you know, it is a constant stop and start. They're playing yeah. a game. They're not playing a game. Um, and, you know, I can, I mean, look, by the end of the season, these guys are gassed. I'm sure I'm not, you know, telling them, you know, oh, they need to go out there and do it. We're, you know, we're not in their shoes. I mean, you watch the, the way that, you know, some of these NBA players walk when they're retired. Their legs are gone. Um, so I can see where the load management can help and hurt. I'm not sure because... I'm seeing both sides. I'm seeing guys that are doing load management that are getting injured and guys that don't do that, that are injured as well. So I'm not sure um, how that affects it, but it's, it's a good question. And, I, and I, I'm curious to see over the longevity, how that will affect it. I do know that some of the biggest names in the game have been out and having Giannis Antetokounmpo out for the Bucks is not something that um, I'm sure they were really excited about having happen in the first round against Miami. Um, Kawhi Leonard looks like he is completely and totally done. Um, Paul George for the Clippers as well. They're two top guys that they brought in to Los Angeles. Uh, I don't believe they're coming back. And John Morant had a great game coming back last night for the Memphis Grizzlies, but he missed a couple games. Um, there are some really big uh, big names that are kind of changing the, the dynamic of the NBA playoffs right now. Um, if Giannis doesn't come back for the Bucks for a while – I, they were someone that you and I talked about as being the favorites to come out of the yeah. East. Jo- Joel Embiid had an MRI, and Doc Rivers says he looks like he's 50% in terms of being ready. Um, that is the Sixers' chances of making it out of the Eastern Conference, and, and it's not happening if, the, happening if they don't have Joel Embiid. Yeah. Um, and then the Clippers, I don't think I saw them as somebody coming out anyway, but without quite Paul George, um, that doesn't seem like they have much of a prayer. Um, this is really changing the dynamic, and if some of these teams, especially in the East, um, I think Boston has to smell blood in the water right now. If Giannis and Embiid are going to be done in the Eastern Conference, um, Boston, I think, has to seem must feel like they punched their ticket already. Yeah, I think the NBA playoffs may have very well just become survival of the fittest at this point, uh, no. with some of the superstars that have dropped out and been injured and are now going to be missing games. Uh, I'm with you. I think Boston absolutely has to capitalize on this if Giannis and Embiid are going to be out for any any length of time. Uh, the Clippers, I think, are effectively done with the way that that series is shaping up. 
and you hate to see it. And I think I, you made a good point there. And maybe this is a, maybe this just simply comes from guys during the regular season coasting for periods of time, and then playoffs hit, and their body's not adjusted to or used to simply going all out for as long as they have to. Uh, right. You know, so is that something that we start looking at? But it's also a case too where we've seen guys play with sprained knees before. You know, we've seen guys play with ankles. We've seen guys play with hands and things like that that are injured. And now we're at a time where franchises and organizations are extremely precautious because they have so much money invested in these guys that they can't afford to sacrifice a game for long-term down the road. And I think that that plays a little bit of a hand into it also is just these franchises being hesitant to throw their superstar back out there, you know, after they get an MRI or an X-ray and something doesn't quite look 100% right, I think they operate with the utmost precaution, even though it is the playoffs. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that's what's, that's what's, you know, there's always an injury that I think that everyone always says like, oh, the playoffs would have looked different if... Right. This guy would have been healthy. Um, this one's shaping up to be like there's a handful of guys that, that are really changing it. Um, I hate when people say asterisks on a championship. Like I, I hate when that's thrown out there because I think if you win, you win. Um, I, I just – that's how it is. Like you said, sometimes it's survival of the fittest. Um, this one is definitely seeming like some teams are eliminating themselves. Um, you know, is it, a, is it a, you know, a case of this guy hasn't played a lot of games and so he's not used to playing at that physicality and, and that speed? Um, you know, some of the teams right now that it looks like they're, that are pretty healthy and, and rolling are, are guys that have played most of the season. Yeah. Um, even with the exception of someone like Giannis Tentacupo, who is not somebody that seems like he's a guy that takes days off. Um, Embiid has a, an injury history. It seems like every single year it's something with him. Um, so in terms of those East guys, it's that. And, and Morant bounced back to where it seems like he's going to be competitive, although the Lakers look like they're starting to take control of that series. Um it is interesting. I'm curious to see how it shapes out when we move on um, into these other rounds. Um, this has been a really fun first round. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how it's going to shape up in the Western Conference. Uh, the Clippers aren't somebody that I saw being a team that were going to make it anyway. No, I agree. But the Eastern Conference is the one that that looks really interesting. If Embiid's going to be out, it's out. Um, it seems like those top three guys were the contenders. If this ends up being a survival of the fittest playoffs, um, I, you know, I, I'm still excited to see where everything plays out. But I definitely, I definitely feel that already, and it is disappointing to me. Um, I think that's the most thing is, you know, I, I don't see it as an asterisk championship, or I don't see it as a, you know, oh, the, you know, this team shouldn't have been there. It's I'm upset that I'm not watching Giannis Antetokounmpo play in the NBA playoffs. I'm upset that we're not going to see. And we've never seen, really, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George play together healthy in an NBA playoff because that was a team everyone was you know, thinking <laughs> could contend for championships. We don't get to see it. And so, you know, I don't know if it's load management or not. I don't know if it's not having the load management. Um, all I know is it's disappointing when you're talking about guys that are all top five, top 10, 15 players in the league. Yeah. And, you know, we're watching, you know, they're wearing hoodies on the sideline. That's no fun to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about officiating 
you know, rewarding some of this style of play that has resulted in some of the ejections and suspensions that we've seen so far. You know, I think to a certain degree also the franchises are enabling some of this stuff too. Uh, yeah. You know, is it, you know, what's the severity of some of these injuries, I think, is probably something that, that we're not going to hear a lot of answers on. You know, right. is are we talking a grade one sprained knee? Are we talking a grade two sprained knee? You know, to what degree is John Morant's hand injured? I know he was back last night and put on a show in the fourth quarter. Right. Um, but we also don't live in a time where um, superstars play through a whole lot either. You know what right. I mean? And I know when you were coming up and when I was coming up watching the NBA, guys played through a little bit of everything. And right. now we're, we're just not accustomed to seeing that out of superstars. Yeah, agreed. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys hear the buzzer. That's the end of our second quarter. Uh, Derek, you got your point off before the uh, – we went to the review booth. You got it off. Count uh, it. Out of, your, out of your hand before the buzzer went off. But, it, again, it's a great point. Uh, it's, it's a different look uh, for the game here. So as we go into halftime to recap, um, you know, this – the officiating and, and sort of the different style of playoffs have definitely affected this this idea of the playoffs being dirty or, or just competitive. Um, and I, I'm definitely feeling the, the impact of the injuries to these superstars. And it's definitely um, making this playoff – these playoffs much different than what I expected um, and, and almost to a disappointing thing. Um, all right, heading into the third quarter here, Derek – uh, we alluded to it in the second quarter, uh, and that that is the discussion of load management. I know we talked about with injuries. Um, I'm curious to know your opinion on it as uh, a whole. You kind of um, introduced it a minute ago as, as the second quarter ended. You seem to kind of have that discussion of errors. I'm curious to see what your thoughts on load management are um, and how you think it is it is changing the game, affecting the game, uh, if you like it or not. So uh, without – Further ado, let's get started in our uh, third quarter. Uh, I'm going to inbound the ball to you here to start the clock. Thoughts on load management? Yeah, I am curious to see how load management will impact the legacy of some of these guys. Because uh, okay. when you t- when you talk about the hierarchy and the history of the game and who we consider to be all-time greats, um, in this new era of NBA basketball with load management in place, how do we then fit some of these guys into conversations? Um, And how do we go about facilitating MVP conversations, defensive player of the year conversations, most improved, uh, you know, scoring champion, I think is a different conversation to have also because of things like load management. And are are, are we going to be, a year or two away, or is it going to be something that maybe the NBA looks at in the immediate future as far as putting game limits on some of these awards to say if you want to qualify to be an NBA All-Star or if you want to qualify to get the MVP or Defensive Player of the Year, Most Improved Player, Sixth Man of the Year, are you going to have to play in a certain number of games in order to qualified to win those types of awards. And I think that that's a conversation the NBA is going to have to have uh, only because at an 82 game season, you're having superstars play 55, 60 games. Uh, 
you know, your scoring champ may your scoring champ may average 32 a night, but played in 62 games or something like that. And I would almost like to see the NBA for the scoring champ go to a total points scored champion. I think that would be interesting because if you look at it from a Major League Baseball perspective, it is whoever hits the most home runs is the home run champion. It's not Aaron Judge averaged 1.2 home Well, he's not going to hit that many, but Aaron Judge averaged .3 home runs per game. Right. Like, no. He hit 60, so he's the home run champion. Right. He hit more than anybody else. I think the NBA, if they want to start incentivizing guys playing and not sitting as much, move the awards to things like that. So I have to agree with that, and it's funny because last season, I think it was last season or two seasons ago, the past two seasons, Trey Young was one of the first was the first player since Nate Archibald to have the most points and most assists in a season. I believe that was last season, but he wasn't the scoring champ. And Embiid, who is one of my favorite all time players, I've loved watching Joel Embiid the past several years. Um, he just won his second scoring title in a row, and he is somebody that um, has fought. Um, injuries and, and the past two seasons has played a lot of games um but i agree with you on that and something like the the scoring champion i'd like to see it go to a total because that means you're playing over the course of the entire season and you've truly scored more points than anyone yeah i completely agree um and you know i agree with that i like the, the major league baseball analogy it's true you know if, if somebody <clears throat> plays half the the season or you get a kid that gets called up you know they're disqualified from awards because they didn't get to play a certain amount of time um, you know, and, and I don't think it's affecting too much, but I think it's starting to, there's starting to be a gap in the players that are missing a lot of games and the players that aren't. Um, and I definitely think that it should exclude certain things. Um, now to kind of look at this from both sides, when I look at load management, I completely understand players wanting to take care of themselves when they're talking about playing over the course of, um, uh, several years. We're seeing players having longer careers, longer careers that are very effective. I know LeBron James is kind of an outlier um, in terms of him being, still being very, very effective yeah. and playing for a long time. But we're seeing guys that are playing well into the 30s, um, which is not something we really saw. Chris Paul still playing at an effective level. Um, we're seeing these guys who are still carrying a heavy load in the games, and they're they're you know a lot older than what we saw guys 10, 20 years ago playing at their age. Yeah. I can see where they're wanting to protect themselves. I get it. I don't think, you know, I brought this up, you know, in the second quarter earlier. I I see guys like Shaq and Charles Barkley on Inside the NBA when they get up from behind their desk and they go to walk. It's hard to watch some of these players later on because they're, they're beaten up. Like, it takes a huge toll on your body. I understand that. But by the same token... If you buy a ticket and you go to a game with load management, you know, in place with that particular team or that particular player, you bought a ticket to see a certain player. You know, yeah. I go to Pacers games all the time. I go to Pacers game. Uh, I bought one this year. Uh, I went up to watch the Miami Heat play the Pacers and Jimmy Butler wasn't playing. Um, and not that Jimmy Butler is like the guy that's on my top list of players I want to see really badly, but... I sure wanted to see Jimmy Butler play. You know, I want to see the superstars play. Yeah. And so um, that's definitely something that's that's frustrating as a fan. 
Um, and from the basketball standpoint, I kind of want to bring this to you. Um, I definitely, definitely think it affects your ability to be competitive in the playoffs. Basketball, um, in terms of as as a team sport, as a whole, is probably the most team-oriented sport that there is. Hockey and soccer are very similar. Um, Football is very skill-oriented, like you have your particular skill. Baseball is an individual sport kind of disguised as a team sport. They all have their teams. But basketball, there has to be kind of this unspoken, you know, understanding that there's chemistry and there's understanding and there's a feel with your teammates. And some of these teams that are really doing the the, the heavy load management and players are playing half the season, you can see in the playoffs that it, it just flat isn't working. Right. It it doesn't look good. We mentioned the Clippers earlier. They don't look in sync. Yeah. They don't look like they know. They just have these pieces, but it doesn't look like they have a feel as a team. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. That's a really good point. As far as your ability to put a team on the court that can play together, because you can sit and watch any NBA game, and <clears throat> it's always interesting to me to watch the teams that when a superstar goes out or they're they're sitting out games for load management purposes, the that team is usually a little bit more fun to watch for at least the first couple of games with those guys out because you've got guys who are role players who are just – they just want to go play basketball. The ball moves, players move, they get quality shots, the ball doesn't stick. You're not watching one guy pound at the top of the key for 18 seconds out of the shot clock. And, you know, on the flip side of that, when those superstars are there – Those teams become so reliant on the superstar, again, because the franchise has so much invested. And I understand that point. of That's not my my argument here. But when you have that much money invested in a a one or two, or in some cases maybe three players, you know they're the focal point. And you end up with a lot of guys standing and watching those guys play basketball. And to me, when you've got a guy that's going to sit for 30 to 35 games of the season, and now all of a sudden April shows up and it's time for the playoffs – like you said, you've got some guys who aren't used to playing with you, and there's no there's no synchronization to the offense, and it just kind of becomes throw the ball to your best player and see what happens. Agreed. All right, that's the end of our uh, third quarter there. Um, to to kind of wrap up on that, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's I think it changes your dynamic, and I don't think you have a lot in sync. Uh, all right, our, our final quarter of play here, going into the fourth, fourth quarter and playing tight. Um, as we're about to start the fourth quarter, um, as we're recording this, the Golden State Warriors just beat the Sacramento Kings by one point. Harrison Barnes uh, missed a game-winning shot opportunity. And that's going to kind of segue into our um, fourth quarter here. And that is our playoff thoughts. And have we changed our mind when we talked last week about um, who is who's winning the championship um, what do we expect? Um, have we been right so far in terms of, you know, I know the first round isn't over yet, but uh, are, are things looking good for our predictions? Do we need to kind of change our thoughts there? And <laughs> as I start the uh, start the clock on the fourth quarter, um, what is it looking like for our playoff predictions, and what are your thoughts on it so far? I would like to change all of my predictions except for Denver because mine have been god-awful. I think Denver, I think, is doing what Denver was supposed to do. That's what you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago as far as our expectations for them. Uh, They should breeze through the first round. Uh, 
Absolutely. I, I still think for me, they're my favorite to win the title. That's not changed. Uh, however, the Lakers, if the Laker team from last night continues to show up. Now, I know Dylan Brooks did his fair share of trying to shoot Memphis out of the game. Uh, but if that Laker team is what shows up, then I would love to see a Denver LA Western Conference Finals, and I would love for it to go seven. Uh, yes, little bubble rematch. Anthony Davis against Jokic, LeBron, Murray. Those guys, I mean, both rosters are pretty well stacked. I think that would be a lot of fun yeah. to watch. The Eastern Conference, I think you and I have both probably swung and missed on a little bit, uh, but. <laughs> I don't think that we could have predicted to see the Eastern Conference shake out the way that it has with with Embiid being injured, um, Harden getting ejected, and you know looking at Miami. Butler's been banged up a little bit. Oladipo, his season's over after last night. Um, hopefully that's a, a injury that he can come back from. That left leg of his has taken a serious toll um, over the last several seasons, um, dating back to when he got injured playing for the Pacers. And um, hopefully – He's able to make a full recovery from this one. Said he, he suffered a torn patella tendon, um, which is different. So he's he's uh, I think torn his quadriceps tendon twice. Did it once playing for the Pacers, tore it again during rehab, and now has has torn his patella tendon, but all in the left leg. So uh, hopefully it's a situation he can co- he can come back from and get rehabbed and, and be back on the roster for the Heat. But uh, yeah, I think. We both kind of were heavy on Cleveland yep. and maybe underestimated the Knicks. And that Knickerbocker squad behind that Madison Square Garden crowd, holy cow. They're tough. They're I tough. Mean, I, they were my dark horse. I thought Cleveland was going to be sneaky. It looks like they're not going to make it past the first round. The Knicks are tough. Nothing about the Knicks team on paper, looking at them, thinks that they will be competitive in the Eastern Conference among some of these teams. But I think it's just the grit, man. They're all tough. They're all smart. They're yeah. well coached. They, in all honesty, they just look like a team that that is. They look like a playoff team. Like play, like they they value possessions. They are they are tough to deal with. They give you nothing easy. They love the physical style of play. They love a little bit of a slower game. And I mean, I'm not saying they can get out of the East or anything, but they're going to be tough to beat. And they're they're beating up on Cleveland right now. Well, and I think what's interesting, too, to go back to our third quarter segment, the Knicks aren't a team that's built on load management, which I think is freaking awesome. Yeah, Um, that's not Thibodeau's thing for sure. You know, and they're paying some serious money out to Brunson, to Julius Randle. You know, they've got some money tied up in contracts, and those guys go play. Uh, You know, you made a good point about wanting to go to Pacers games to see superstars on other squads, and unfortunately – for whatever reason, Indianapolis is one of those cities where guys are willing to set out games, um, especially visiting teams is kind of my point there. Uh, I think the Pacers players do a nice job of, at least at home, trying to get in as much as they can. But visiting teams, Indy's one of those cities a lot of times where superstars get sat. And I've been uh, – I went and saw the Knicks play the Pacers last season, and they all were dressed out and ready to go. Um, and I think that that goes to kind of our point as far as their, their team being familiar with each other. And I think that's part of where their success comes from. You know, they've argued that, you know, they've, their guys have played as many, if not more games together than anybody else. And I think that that goes a long way. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that's a huge, uh, a huge credit to that. I mean, Thibodeau is kind of famously a coach that plays his guy almost a little too much. Um, sometimes he'll, he'll, uh, he does not give a lot of breaks in the games. Um, he likes to roll out his superstars um, throughout the entire game. And, you know, in the playoffs, I think that's a pretty good strategy. Uh, I think it wears his guys out in the regular season, but it's, it's working for him here in the first round. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the – I believe I got all of my um, my play-in game predictions correct, and then since then it's been kind of off the rails. <laughs> uh, the West has been pretty interesting. I did not expect the Lakers to be what they were, and they are really taking it to Memphis, um, even with Jaws' great performance. Uh, I did think that Sacramento was going to beat Golden State. Um, Golden State is not going out without a fight here, and Sacramento is running into the playoff savvy Golden State Warriors. Uh, it did become what you and I were talking about and being a shootout. Um, these are high scoring games yeah. and high scoring um, like uh, performances. Uh, I, you know what you're going to get with Steph and Clay and those guys, but what the Kings are doing, they're putting out a seriously fun product in the regular season and a really fun product mm-hmm. in the playoffs. This is a really fun team. Um, so bonus being what we thought it would be, but De'Aaron Fox has kind of solidified himself now that he's a superstar. Like yeah. that's what he looks like to me. Um, he's hitting clutch shots. He won that clutch player of the year award. I don't know if you saw that, but yeah. he won the, the new clutch player of the year award. Um, he's got this little 12 to 15 foot pull up jumper. That's almost a floater, but it, it's, it's this really smooth shot that he gets off all the time there in these games coming right off a of Sabonis screen. Um, they're just really fun. Um, and if they get past Golden State, I think they have a shot to make a run through the West because there are nights when I don't think that they're guardable. Yeah. Um, it's weird to say this, but Golden State looked better against them without Draymond, I think, because it's weird to say this about the Warriors, but I think through the first couple games, the Warriors didn't have as many offensive threats on the floor as what Sacramento had. And I know that's hard to say because it's the Warriors. But when they were running out these line on, uh, lineups with Draymond and Kevon Looney, they didn't really match the the shooting and the spacing that um, Sacramento had. That you know, Golden State had two guys that weren't really offensive threats on the floor. Yep. Um, and then you know, in that game a couple days ago, when you had Jordan Poole and Steph and Clay and Wiggins, it, they kind of matched them player for yeah. player, and at that point, the Warriors seemed like they were they were you know they could yeah could handle it. Um, this is going to be a shootout. I hope that it it is the maximum of the series. I hope it goes to. Um, I hope we see uh, another a couple more games of back and forth. It's been the most fun series, um, and I think it's going to be really exciting. And I agree with you with Denver. I think if Denver makes it through, they're kind of very easily handling the Timberwolves. Yeah. Um, the player I kind of want to talk about in that is Anthony Edwards. Um, and I, he's been super fun. And I think he's another guy that's kind of announced himself as a star. Yeah, that series is, from an individual standpoint, is fun to watch. Not so much from a competitive standpoint, because I think the Nuggets are just a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, but from an individual standpoint, getting to watch Anthony Edwards and Towns, Jokic, Murray, uh, Michael Porter Jr. looks like he's healthy and ready to go. And both teams are fun to watch in their own right. And I love the fact that Michael Conley is still out there at his age, you know, year, I think, 16 at this point in the NBA. Yes. I love seeing him out there on the, on the floor being the point guard for that, for that team and kind of leading that organization. For sure. And that is our fourth quarter buzzer. Um, 
that wraps up our our game here. Um, I thought it was an interesting new format. We're hoping to hear from you guys and, and see what you like about it. Um, we're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we are going to discuss our favorite playoff performances of all time. All right, Cam. That was a fantastic discussion there with our four quarters, and I think that that's going to be a good little uh, good little way to frame the podcast moving forward. Um, for sure. And for hopefully, sure. hopefully the people listening enjoy it. Uh, didn't get us rambling for too long and kind of <laughs> – Kept us locked in a little bit there, uh, but good discussions nonetheless, and, and hopefully everybody that listens finds that to be a a, a decent format for us moving forward. Uh, but for now, we're going to get into our big topic for the day. Uh, we're going to get into talking about our top three all-time playoff performances slash playoff runs. Yeah. Um, I think my list is going to look a little bit different than yours or shape up a little bit differently than yours. Uh, which is good because it, it'll make for a better discussion here. So uh, the first one on my list I wrote down, and I've got out of my three, two that I, I've been alive for to witness, um, and then one that's a little bit more old school for us to have a, a good discussion on later too. But number one for me is the Jordan flu game. Okay, uh, yeah. And the beauty of one of the small beauties of COVID, I guess, was the fact that uh, the last dance got released way early and yes. gave us all a chance to have something to do at least one night out of the week uh, to watch the story behind the Chicago Bulls and their last run for an NBA title there with their group. Uh, but this is in 1997. This was the 96-97 season, um, the year before um, the official quote-unquote last dance. But they spent a little bit of time talking about it because obviously they played Utah in back-to-back years. And we can talk about it being a flu game. We can talk about it. Was it food poisoning? Was it the flu? Um, Was it hangover, question mark? Yeah, hashtag question mark. Um, Did the pizza delivery guy maybe bring some bad cheese? Yeah. Yeah, who? It it just depends. The people in Utah are relentless from what I hear. So uh, certainly we're trying to give the jazz the edge if the food poisoning thing is true. But nonetheless, it gets the tag as the flu game. Uh, and for those of you that have seen clips or were actually able to watch the game on TV back in the late 90s, uh, there were times where it did not appear that he was going to be able to even get himself to the bench. Uh, And there's that famous picture, famous video of him essentially falling into Scottie Pippen's lap. He the Bulls force a turnover. They throw the outlet pass. They kick it ahead to Jordan. He splits a couple of guys, goes up, lays the ball in. Utah burns a timeout, and he's <laughs> had to be carried to the bench by Scotty and then grabbed by a couple of guys. Uh, they had the ice packs going. They had the IVs going. And at one point there during a timeout, too, the, the ice pack's on his neck, and he just kind of collapses into the bench. And... I don't like getting out of bed in the morning if I've got a sore throat. So for for that man to play through what looked like miserable conditions uh, and to not only play, but to go out and to drop 38 in an NBA Finals game kind of tells you everything you need to know. And again, we talked about load management, and I don't think that that man would have ever – understood what that word meant uh, yeah. there was no load management it was simply 
we're going to win the title and we're going to figure out how we're going to win it. Um, and that's an all-time performance as far as putting your team on your back and leading them to a victory. And I thought it was awesome. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the, the all-time playoff moments and, and definitely kind of uh, shouting out the last dance there. That was the perfect time needed for uh, for that documentary and, and at that, that time in our lives. Um, and that's definitely one that uh, I think back to a lot, and that was one of my favorite episodes is getting to see that and getting to hear the, the rumors of what that might have actually <laughs> right. been. Um, and and to, to piggyback on the – on the uh, the COVID basketball year, uh, that's going to bring me to my first um, okay. uh, playoff performance, uh, the one that I chose here. Um, and so mine is kind of a playoff run. Um, and so I chose the Denver Nuggets in the uh, Orlando playoff bubble. And so as you mentioned, um, some of the small beauties of that time, and there was a lot of not so much fun going on, but <laughs> I, I can guarantee that you were experiencing this. I was experiencing full basketball withdrawals at that time. Yeah. Um, and I was watching old games on YouTube and like YouTube was premiering old like NBA games like every day and they were like showing them live. Um, and it was pretty fun to see that. But when the bubble basketball came out, it was just basketball. Everyone was down there. Um, that may have been the most fun in terms of like NBA playoffs that I've ever had. It was just nothing but basketball. It was on all the time. And I was so excited when it happened. Um, and it's funny, I think that started right about the time you and I met because we had just started working together at Salem. Yeah. Yep. And so we had been talking about that. So to go with the Denver Nuggets in the bubble there, their first game was like during the day in an afternoon. And I was I was working, but I had it up on my computer. I was watching. <laughs> we hadn't watched basketball, real like live basketball in months. So I had it on. And the first game was Murray and Donovan Mitchell in just a pure shootout. They both had a couple 50-point games in that series. Um but the Nuggets went down three to one in that series, and then three to one in the next series, and then took it down to the wire with the Lakers in the next one. And they didn't yep. make it to the finals. But to have that team come back from a three-one deficit twice, to have Murray be out of his mind, and I was a pretty big fan of Nikola Jokic. Um, he is probably my favorite player in the league at this point. Um, that kind of stamped it for me as I was like, okay, this guy is a different, a different breed and he's going to be something. And he got back-to-back MVPs after that. Yeah. But that run where, you know, there was a lot of Lakers talk. There was a lot of talk for some of these other teams. And that was that Clippers team that was really highly regarded to see him take that to the jazz and then take that to the Clippers in historic fashion, two consecutive series, and then take the Lakers down to the wire was the, one of the most fun playoff teams that I've ever witnessed. I mean, it was, you know, it was in this very weird time when we really, really needed it. And there were some all-time performances in those playoffs, but to see that team do that and then kind of stamp their, their ticket as we're a team that's going to be contending for the next several years, that was, in recent memory, the most fun team um, in the playoffs that, I, that I've got to watch. Yeah, and that series was fun. That, that entire bubble situation was fun to watch. Again, you know, we're talking about the season got canceled in March, yep. we had not seen competitive basketball on TV for four or five months. Yes, at that point, so being able to have that was was awesome, and everybody needed it. Um, but yeah, I think that that bubble series, even though Denver didn't come out of it, uh, you know, Murray gets hurt, and it, you could make the argument, you know, what if there? You and I have those conversations quite a bit. 
if Murray doesn't go down, do they beat L.A.? Do they win the title? Uh, but it certainly propelled Jokic into this run of MVPs and the success that he's had. And Denver's not really faltered. And with Murray back now, they look like a legitimate contender to go win the whole thing this year. For sure. Uh, second one, looking at this, are our, our, our three topics here. Uh, my second all-time playoff performance comes out of 2007. LeBron James playing against the Cle- or the uh, playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Sorry, playing against the Detroit Pistons, and this effectively ended that run for the Detroit Pistons that they had from 2004 to about 2006, 2007 ish. Um, that four, that three or four year period they had there, where they were one of the most dominant teams in the league uh, and won a title. Uh, that I'm still salty over because it should have been the Pacers, but that's yeah. a that's a late that's a later what if discussion too. Uh, yeah. But in this game, it's game five of that series with Cleveland and Detroit, and I'm reading this article here from Bleacher Report, and it says LeBron let his inner cyborg shine for the first time, and that's a pretty on point way of describing this performance. He scored 25 points in a row at one point, and 29 of the Cavaliers' final 30. Um, at the 7.48 mark of the fourth of the fourth quarter, Zeldrinus Elgowskis made a free throw. No one else for Cleveland scored the rest of the game. Wow. Uh, it was a double overtime game. Cleveland came out on top, uh, and that was that fluke run and we can have another discussion later um, about this playoff run, but arguably the most unexpected playoff run in NBA history. When you look at the cast that was alongside LeBron James, and we can talk about the greatness that is LeBron James, this might have been his greatest achievement in taking that 2007 Cavs team to the finals. Uh, I know everybody can talk about how he didn't win, but he ran into a buzzsaw that was the San Antonio Spurs, and the dude yeah. had no help in Cleveland. Uh, yes. But for me, sitting there, I was in my, my friend's basement watching this game play, and we were collectively losing our minds for about 25, 30 minutes um, and just watching what he was doing. He was unconscious, uh, whether it was getting to the free throw line, drawing fouls, whether it was dunking over people, whether it was you know banging home 29, 30-foot threes. Uh, it was as as much of just an in-the-zone, out-of-your-mind performance that I can remember seeing, but it was so much fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, that kind of put LeBron James on the map for me. Um, I had a friend who is one of my best friends through, through school and, and, and still is today, and he is as big a LeBron fan as anyone. And, you know, I knew about LeBron because of him, because that was his guy. Okay. Um, when he took them to the finals... They, they talk about how you can judge an all-time great, and it's they get there quicker than what most people would. A lot of times people work their way up and get there, and there are a handful of guys in the history of the league who get to a championship, win one, or get there, and it happens way quicker than what you'd expect. Right. Uh, that was definitely one for him, especially with uh, the cast that he had. You know, you could look at someone like Kobe Bryant getting there early in his career. That's fantastic. He has – you know, Shaquille O'Neal with him. Tim Duncan won one like his, you know, second year in the league. I uh, I believe like his second year in the in the league. And but he had you know Dave Robinson with him. When you look at LeBron, 
the gap between him and then the second best player is probably as great as there's ever been on a finals team. Maybe with the you know exception of Allen Iverson in 2001. But yeah, LeBron carried. I mean, but he had Defensive Player of the Year and. The Kimmy Matamba, I believe, was Defensive Player of the Year that year. So, like, LeBron had nothing. Like you're saying, that I think that stamped, like, the, this guy is is here, he's for real. And yeah. I, it happened way quick. But yeah. Yeah, that, that was fantastic. Um, what do you got? So uh, for my second one, uh, I'm going similar era. Um, and I'm going with Tim Duncan in 2003. Okay. Um, so, Tim Duncan right now, if I can get on my – like soapbox here for a minute is being overlooked as one of the all time <laughs> greats. And there is a lot of talk about these guys that are being, you know, some of the greatest players. There's a lot of goat conversations and I'm not saying he is, but Tim Duncan doesn't get the respect that he deserves. And it's be- it's because of his off the court presence or lack thereof. That's fair. Um, but Duncan in the late nineties and early two thousands, there is a lot of Shaq and Kobe talk, well-deserved. But Duncan was probably the best player in the league at that point. He won back-to-back MVPs. He won five titles. He's a Ray Allen shot away from being six for six in the NBA Finals. Um, and Duncan, every year, all-star game, all-NBA, all-defense, clockwork. So he had won – they had won their title in 97 – I'm sorry, 99. He comes in the league in 97. They win a title in 99 in that shortened year. 2003, they go up against the New Jersey Nets. This is right after this Lakers run. And not only do they win his second title, he has, I think, maybe the most dominant finals uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. So just to read off his stats... In the one, two, three, four, five, six games that they played against the Nets. I'd like to read these off really quickly just to show. This is probably the best finals performance of a player I've seen. In game one, he's 32 points, 20 rebounds, six assists, and seven blocks. Game two, 19 and 12. Game three, 21 and 16. Game four, 23 and 17. Game five, 29 and 17. And then, game six, the game they clinch, he has an infamous game where he has the near quadruple double. 21 points, 20 rebounds, 10 assists, and 8 block shots to clinch the playoff. It was an absolutely, completely dominated championship series by Tim Duncan. And to have almost a quadruple double, which some say may have been a quadruple double, they missed a block or two, you know, if you go back and watch the game, Bill Walton is complaining as he's. By the way, and if you go back and watch the game, it's an understandable Bill Walton, which is something we don't get anymore. <laughs> um, a well called game by Bill at that time. Tim Duncan dominates every single facet of this game, and we were talking earlier about guys that dominate the ball. Um, and no disrespect to the way guys like Luca or Harden or Trey Young or some of the way these guys play. Um, it's just the way the game's played now. But I'm not talking about a guy who has the ball all the time. I'm talking about he dominates all aspects. He's scoring when he wants. He is getting every rebound. I mean, he has two 20-rebound games in the finals. He is blocking double-digit shots. He's getting 10 assists. He's dominating the entire game. 
Um, and this is a guy who did this very quietly. He's a guy that wasn't a guy that, you know, had the usage rate in terms of having the ball all the time. Right. Um, to see a guy who played a traditional style of post play do this. And again, this is a different game than we see now, but Tim Duncan dominated this team in a way that that put Tim Duncan on the map for me. Um, at this point, I am eight years old. Um, and Tim Duncan became the guy that I wanted to emulate. My dad would go out and work. We'd work on post moves and stuff um, in our driveway on our basketball, you know, our basketball goal because of what Tim Duncan did. And I wanted to be this guy because of it. And I have not seen a player dominate every aspect with the exception of one. And he's kind of in my honorable mention. And it's the guy that you mentioned as well. But um, Tim Duncan doing that in 2003, I think was incredible. Yeah. And the, the neat thing about the Spurs was, I was, I was in high school at the time when they were kind of making their runs. Middle school when they won it in the, gosh, what was it, the 99 season that was shortened because of the lockout. Yeah, uh, but then, is. you know, the better part of my high school into my college life was basically the Spurs. Uh, yeah. But I think what's, what's neat about San Antonio and Tim Duncan specifically is they always somehow flew under the radar. They won 55 to 60 games like clockwork and yet never quite seemed to get the respect or the pub or the acknowledgement that I feel like they needed. And I think part of that, like you said, there's the Shaq and Kobe conversation in L.A., which overshadowed everybody else in the league, and at the time rightfully so. But even looking at their final series that they were in, outside of the 2007 series against Cleveland and the LeBron James Cavaliers, they weren't necessarily favored or picked to win any of those. Uh, you know, 99, when they beat the Knicks, those two teams were pretty even, but they soundly beat New York. Uh, yes. In 2003, that Nets team was coming off a previous trip to the finals in 2002, got blasted by the Lakers, but on paper, they were supposed to match up evenly, and Duncan does what he does. And then skip forward to 2005, they're not supposed to beat Detroit. Detroit's supposed to repeat. And everybody's talking about is San Antonio on the decline. They absolutely weren't. Um, you know, Robert Ory, of course, does what Robert Ory does and bangs home a big shot to, to win a game, and they get that series. And then you put them up against Miami, and like without Ray Allen making one of the biggest – clutch shots in NBA playoff history, they beat the Miami Heat twice in the finals yep. if Ray Allen doesn't make that shot because that was the closeout game. Uh, yep. And, you know, they're they're five seconds away from beating Miami twice and Duncan having six rings. And it's yeah. that's one thing that's always kind of caught me off guard as far as NBA teams and franchises and players is how they managed to fly under the radar for so long. Yeah, and he's definitely, I think, the greatest example of that. Yeah. Who's your, who's your last one? Who is your, the, uh, your top playoff performer? Last one, I'm going to give a historical throwback to. Okay. Uh, and this goes back to 1980. Okay. We're looking at game six of the NBA Finals, a closeout game between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Philadelphia 76ers. All right. And I've got a rookie named Magic Johnson. For my third one, my third all-time playoff performance here. Um, in Game 6 of the 1980 Finals, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is injured. He's out, as we all know. Um, previously, the all-time leading scorer in the NBA until LeBron passed him this year. And 
certainly was the focal point, the center stone of the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, Magic was rookie of the year. Uh, was Magic rookie of the year? Or did Bird get it? No, I believe Bird was rookie of okay. the year. Okay, that's what I thought. So Magic, nonetheless, has a great rookie season. Um, kind of doesn't necessarily exceed expectations, but certainly meets the expectation for what he was supposed to be coming into the league out of Michigan State. And at 20 years old, in Game 6 of the 1980 Finals, Magic goes from playing point guard to playing point center. Yeah. And at some point plays all five positions in this game. He goes off for 42 points, 15 rebounds, and seven assists. Uh, and like I said, you know, not only was he 20 years old, not only was he a rookie, uh, but it was a closeout game in the NBA Finals. Uh, so when we think about performances and, you know, where the lure of Magic Johnson in NBA starts, I mean, this is the performance that you can kind of look back at and say, oh, well, this is when this guy officially announced he was here uh, and and got the Lakers their title that year and won the finals MVP, without question won the finals MVP. Um, and then the rest is kind of history as far as what he was able to accomplish and what the Lakers did um, throughout the 80s and the early 90s. Yeah, it's funny that we're having this conversation. And first of all, there's so many playoff performances that we could reference. Like, there's so many good ones. But you're talking about LeBron scoring 25 straight points, um, Duncan having almost a quadruple double, Magic's numbers in that game. And, like, every time we're mentioning, like, one of us is just cracking up. Like, as you mentioned, Magic's numbers in that, you're talking about a rookie. He's 20 years old. Like, he just comes in the league. And... The guy who was at the time considered the best player in basketball in Kareem yeah. goes down and it's like, hey, I'll take his spot and play it in a revolutionary way and then completely dominate every aspect of this game. Like I'm just yeah. cracking up here in those numbers. Because, you know, we have a lot of young guys coming to the league now and everyone talks about this now. Like, you know, oh, it's a younger league and younger players are dominating much earlier. And it's like, okay, but you know, there was a time when there were a few guys that made some noise when they were yeah. pretty young too. And to have Magic come in and do that is is fantastic. Uh, to quickly make this point before I move on to mine, there are a lot of times people talk about if you have a time machine, and I think this is an episode maybe we could have at some point, like what would you do? And a lot of people would discuss going back to maybe prevent the Kennedy assassination, but there's a lot of games like that Magic game that I'm doing before I stop any historical tragedy. <laughs> I'm sorry if that hurts anybody's feelings, but like... <laughs> There are games like that that I'm like, if I have a time machine, I'm probably going back to watch Magic take that game over or something like that. So, um, sorry if that was, you know. <laughs> but, like, no, I mean, something like that, I, I desperately wish I could have seen, you know, Magic come out and, and do that and announce his, you know, his presence with authority in the yeah. NBA from went on. Yeah. Uh, so, for my last one here, um, I did not go, did not go as far back as you did. Uh, but I went back to my high school days um, and a finals that is absolutely my favorite playoff run and performance of all time. And that is Dirk Nowitzki in the 2011 NBA finals and yep. that playoff. So before that, to give a little context for maybe viewers who don't know the kind of the climate of the NBA at that point, but I was going into my freshman year of high school and that summer I remember 
watching the decision on TV, and I'm sure you watched it too. Yep. Um, and I remember calling a friend of mine right after it happened. Uh, the same friend I mentioned earlier, huge LeBron fan. Right after it happened and talking about LeBron going to Miami. And that was kind of, you know, this, the media circus that it was. But the story the entire year was this team will ruin the NBA. You had LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh gets overlooked, but he was a phenomenal yeah. NBA player. Um, Chris Bosh, by the way, quick note, when he left Toronto, I believe he was their franchise leader in seven categories when he left. <laughs> At the time, I mean, Toronto was a fairly young franchise, but I think that's pretty interesting to note. Like, he was, Chris Bosh wasn't a joke. Um, three superstars, and like basically, I don't know if you remember this or like, I'm sure you probably, I'm sure you remember it, but like kind of the talk was that it would kind of ruin the league. Like they would be yeah. too good. Like they'd be too good and they would, and it would beat everybody. And there was a lot of LeBron fans who became Heat fans. And then it was split. You either like LeBron or you absolutely loathe the Miami Heat. Yeah. Most people didn't like it. I don't think that I just loathe them, but I definitely was worried that one team would be so good that it would make it a joke. Yeah. And they won their championships. But I know this is built up getting into Dirk here, but because of the story, and then the story parallel to it with Dirk Nowitzki, who had pretty much been written off at that point, he had lost to a Miami Heat team in 2006. He had never really performed well in the playoffs, like the Mavericks had not done very well. He won an MVP, and they lost in the first round to that Golden State team. Right. Um, those We Believe Warriors. Yep. In the first round, they got knocked off by an eight seed. And so Dirk was kind of written off. And for Dirk, who is past his prime, to go up against three guys in their prime, in you know, the the Heatles, as they yeah. called them, uh-huh. that big three team that said they were going to win not one, not two, not three, not four, that they announced they would dominate the league for the next decade. And he dominates the playoffs. He beats Kobe's team. He beats a young OKC team and then to go beat Miami in the finals and dominate them. I mean, Dirk completely and totally dominated 27, 24, 34 points, 21, 29, 21. I mean, he averages 26 points, 10 and 10 rebounds against the team that was going to be unbeatable. Right. And gets a championship. It's my favorite run because he had been written off. And the rumor was, I've read this, that Dirk was not a fan of this because he stayed in Dallas when it was tough. And this, these guys that don't win, and they all go team up. And it was something yep. that, that bothered him. And it's my favorite run because, on paper, that should not have happened. And that bad Dallas team was pretty good. But they had no business, one, maybe even making it to the finals, and two, beating that completely stacked squad. Yeah. For Dirk to go in there and beat them, Regardless, he had great numbers, but regardless of the numbers, that just took him from being, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. But, like, that is legendary. Like, him doing that to me is something I think we're almost too close to it. When we go, you know, maybe a decade or more down the road, it's going to be looked back at as like, oh, hey, that's one of the greatest runs, especially in the context of the time. And it's made Dirk one of my favorite all-time players. He was beforehand, but that to me, like, I go back and watch those games sometimes. Those were COVID games I went back and watched on YouTube for sure. Um, to see him go back and dominate that way is just, it made him a legend. And it's, it's my favorite run ever. Yeah. And it's a hundred percent for me based on the circumstance and it's, it's who he did it against. 
like you said, there were people that were trying to write the Mavericks off because they had an old Jason Kidd at the time at their point guard spot, which Jason Kidd on the U.S. Olympic team for 2008-2012, I loved every minute of it, the Redeem team in Beijing. uh, And... They didn't have. They certainly, on paper, did not match up with what Miami put out there. But Dirk, I've arguably as great a run as far as one man on a mission. And we talk about the Jordan flu game and putting a team on your back. I mean, Dirk did that for six games in that series. Yeah, and it was. And the crazy thing is too with my. It didn't go seven games. No, like, it was six games. It wasn't like. They came out and, you know, pushed Miami to seven games and then, oh, you know, came out and went nuts in game seven or anything. They handled it in six. Yeah. Um, and completely shocked the basketball world because, like you said, you know, they come out and they announce we're not doing one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and the expectations for them, you know, were <laughs> it was certainly not to come out and lose a title in year one. But – that performance with Dirk putting the entire organization on his back and carrying him across the finish line is as good as any we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, that that's my favorite for that reason, is purely the context. Um, I don't think there – I don't know if there will ever be, ever be anybody that, that beats that for me just purely because of the story itself, but um, that is my favorite. But all, all six of the ones we've mentioned here – and there are so many. I mean, good grief. I mean, we could do another six, I'm sure, but um, and maybe we could. But to look back and then thinking about this before we did it, it was just so much fun to think like, oh, yeah. my gosh, like I, I remember what it felt like to watch that guy do that. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible. Um, well, um, that being said, that wraps, us, uh, wraps it up for us here at the Picket Fence Podcast. We'll be back later this week with a – we're going to draw up a quick hitter. Uh, later this week to 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 play out and uh, maybe discuss some more playoffs and talk about some hot topics in basketball. Um, thank you for joining us here. Be sure to follow us on social media. And as always, for us here at the Picket Fence Podcast, don't, don't get, get caught, caught watching the paint dry. dry.